the closer you get to a black hole, the more everything around it is distorted and doesn't make any sense. The rules of physics and everything change. When it comes to power, the closer you get to powerful people, all of the rules around them start to change. Hello and welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with me, Clover Hogan. Today's episode is with Marcus J. Ball, who in May of 2019 found his name splashed across every major news outlet around the world. Marcus had launched a crowdfunded private prosecution case against Boris Johnson for lying in politics. In this conversation, Marcus and I talk about truth, democracy, and the corruption of our leaders, but we also dive deep into finding your obsession, facing up to fears of not being enough, and why loss, grief, and death can be the greatest gifts of all. This was a conversation that left me buzzing, and the cupcakes certainly helped. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding of the strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. So far, growing up in the UK, I've potentially, possibly, seen a war started based upon lying in politics, resulting in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq. Then, um, as I get older, the first time I try and engage in politics, I get burnt, and I feel like, oh, that was horrible. I've been used um, with Nick Clegg and the Liberal, Liberal Democrats. And then, as I got older, the referendum happened, and it just hit me for a third time. You've got an entire country divided believing that the Remainers and the Leavers are lying to everybody else. Everyone splits in half, everyone's confused, and I was angry as hell because I felt that the referendum result came about through dishonest activity majorly on the Leave side and um, misuse of public funds on the Remain side. So I thought to myself, what should I do about this? And I decided I'm going to raise as much money as I can. I'm going to get a legal team and we're going to explore the possibility to criminally prosecute politicians for their conduct against the public. At any point, did you think that it was completely absurd and out of reach and crazy? Did you allow that doubt to seed itself in your mind or were you absolutely uncompromising in the fact that you had to go out and do this? My instincts were just screaming at me this should not be allowed. This should not be permitted in any kind of advanced, self-respecting democratic society. You should not be able to have elected representatives lying to the public. So I was very confident at the beginning. Mm. I knew it had to be done. And I think one of the first things I said in my videos was, um, even if we fail or even if it's going to be difficult, we have a responsibility to try regardless because you can't, as a, as a society, you can't let politicians treat you like that and then not respond. Why do you feel that this specifically was the trigger, though? Because so many of us have resigned ourselves to the idea that the system is fundamentally broken mm. and that politicians are not to be trusted. And so we allow ourselves to become super complacent and kind of disengage entirely from that political process. So why do you feel like this was finally that thing that pushed you over the edge? Well, first of all, I'd say that that's what they want us to do. They want us to get confused and tired and back away from it so they have more freedom and power and less scrutiny. I think the reason it happened was because it was the third time it had happened in my life. I was older, more mature, more capable, I had more experience, more contacts. I knew I could raise the money. So it was the first time I was at a point where I could act, whereas previously I felt powerless. Um, so yeah, it's probably the, 
majorly that. Yeah. Also because I cared about the referendum, I cared about those issues. And I, I hated the way the country felt after those people did what they did. The country was just split in half and the idea of a united kingdom united on values and identity is just dead now and so what happened next uh over the next three and a half years we investigated both sides and then we built this case against boris johnson because the evidence against boris johnson is uh far far greater in quantity how deep did you dig into his past the the earliest piece of evidence that I use in the case is 1994 when he was writing an article as a young journalist in which he criticised a politician for lying about the amount of money the UK sends the EU. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so I've actually got him criticising somebody else for doing the same thing that he did, which is great. <laughs> You've got to love the irony. The reason we, we chose Johnson was because we worked out that the strongest argument you could make was that the claim, we send the EU £350 million a week, that's just completely false. It's not accurate at all. The amount of money that we send to the EU is hundreds of millions of pounds um, less per year and billions of pounds less per year as well, uh, depending if, on the nature of the claim you use. Do you believe personally that he was intentionally trying to incite confusion? He was trying to manipulate, deceive, persuade, and lie to the public by lying to them about how they use, how the government uses their money. It's 100% part of his strategy. It's a part of lots of politicians' strategies. It's just so ingrained in their culture that they are offended that anybody would try and challenge them and say, you can't do it. Mm. It's just part of their lives. How did you begin your process of research in terms of differentiating between objective and subjective truths? Because... Yeah. A lot of politicians use a bunch of hyperbole. They often say things that morally, ethically are just fundamentally wrong yeah. and go against our basic humanity, but they aren't called out for it necessarily. So why is it that you decided to really focus on this particular claim? The, the thing about freedom of speech is that the, the, the right to freedom of expression is a right to express how you honestly feel. The right of freedom of expression, according to a court decision in a case called R.V. Woolis, I think it was, goes something along the lines of the right to freedom of expression does not extend to knowingly false statements. Mm. So lying about what you believe is not expression. It's the opposite. It's mm -hmm. an abuse of it. So that's not protected by the law at all. Can you speak a little bit about the inconsistencies in the standards to which we hold politicians mm -hmm. in terms of their communication and also um, speak a little bit about how your perception of power has evolved throughout this case? Sure. And perhaps to some of the backlash that you received as well and why you received it, where you feel that was stemming from and who was driving it. Okay. What do we have here? <laughs> These are... Some beautiful cupcakes. Right. <laughs> so there is a, a statutory law, an act, I think, called the Trade Descriptions Act. And there are fraud offenses. There are various other things. The point I'm making is that if you create a physical product, food, some kind of device like this, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, this microphone, and uh, if you provide a service of some kind, perhaps a financial service... Mm -hmm. There are rules, there are laws that you have to advertise honestly. You can't mislead the public. Mm -hmm. You can't lie about your products and services. You can't commit fraud by mm -hmm. lying, basically. That's, that's, that's in very basic terms. You, um, you can't deceive in order to make a gain for yourself or a loss for another. 
These laws are created by the very politicians that I'm trying to hold to account. They spent the last few hundred years creating laws telling the rest of society, you can't lie to each other. You can't because it's damaging. It destroys trust in the economy and in business and in products and services. It's just terrible. All I'm doing with my work is simply pointing back at them and saying, oh, by the way, you can't lie either. <laughs> They're the rules that the rest of society have to follow. So why shouldn't they? But then we come onto the topic of power and the relationships uh, of powerful people in society and how everything is intertwined. Somebody said to me, um, he used to work in the House of Lords. He was an assistant to a peer. And he said that something he'd learned when he was working in Parliament was that um, power is like a black hole. The closer you get to a black hole, the more everything around it is distorted and doesn't make any sense. The rules of physics and everything change. When it comes to power, the closer you get to powerful people, all of the rules around them start to change. They become confusing and nothing makes any sense. It's a weird thing that happens. And that is something I have completely experienced on this case. If we lived in a, a, a country, a world, if you like, where equality under the law and key legal principles, like the, the right to a fair hearing, the right to a fair trial, all of this kind of thing really existed, I wouldn't have had to raise hundreds of thousands of pounds. I wouldn't have had to have hired my own legal team. I wouldn't have had to have mounted a massive communication strategy, do things like this. I could have simply gone to the police and just politely pointed out to them, he's abused his duty of scrutiny to the public. So can you please investigate this and prosecute if appropriate? The police won't do that. The police are not going to um, attack up. They attack down mostly. They... If you're poor from a poor background and you commit a crime, the police are going to go after you most of the time if they can get the evidence. If you're powerful and rich and on top of the police, if you're senior in the hierarchy, persuading your colleagues and your boss and your boss's boss that prosecuting someone who has huge influence potentially through their network over your career and your boss's career and your boss's boss's career, that whole relationship suddenly changes everything. Everything becomes confusing. And the question isn't just, did this person break the law? The question is, is it going to help me to actually do anything about it? And that's when the whole situation turns around. In terms of um, relationships and power, though, look at judges. So when we went to court at Westminster Magistrates, I was really impressed with District Judge Margot Coleman. She was a district judge, so she's not a magistrate. She's actually a lawyer, legally trained and everything like that. And um, she spent three and a bit months carefully considering our case. She had two hearings three written arguments she considered and various other emails. Basically, what I'm trying to say is she was thorough, she did her job properly, and in the end, she ruled in our favor. The High Court had our case for about three days, the papers. They had other hearings they were doing during those three days. They had a hearing for us in the morning in which it was clear they hadn't read the full documentation we'd given them. It became apparent that the biggest document that I was submitting to the court, which the previous court had considered, hadn't even been given to them for some random reason, I don't understand. And they killed it. They just killed the case. So three months of careful consideration, three and a bit months, build up, rules in our favour. The ruling is Boris Johnson has to go to the Crown Court for a full criminal trial with a jury and everything like that. The media goes nuts. The whole planet covers it. That's not an exaggeration. It was everywhere. It's all over the TV. And um, suddenly the High Court just assassinates it. <laughs> and I got suspicious as hell because when we appealed and we just said, look, High Court judges, um, 
you've missed some, few, some things here. I mean, we wrote a, a well-reasoned argument explaining this is wrong. You've contradicted yourself here. This contradicts court of appeal precedent, et cetera, et cetera. Their response to our 10 pages of legal argument was, and we made three requests. The response to each of our requests was this, no, no, no. They didn't say anything else. <laughs> that, was, that was in an email. And so what happened when you started digging? If there's an appearance of possible bias, something about your relationship with the person in court, which could give an appearance that a member of the public, an informed, sensible member of the public, may consider that you have a conscious or subconscious reason to be biased, you must disclose that too. You don't necessarily have to recuse yourself from the case and not act on it at all, but you have a duty to disclose it to the court, have both sides consider it, and give them the chance to make arguments, either saying you can continue or we would like you to, to not be on this case. So that's the context. What I discovered was that Judge Supperstone, who killed the case against Boris Johnson, and remember the case was against Boris Johnson, partly in his capacity as head of the Greater London Authority and Mayor of London. The judge that killed that case didn't tell anyone in court at any point, didn't disclose it to us privately anywhere, that he used to be one of the lawyers of the head of the Greater London Authority, Mayor of London, Boris Johnson. I found proof of a payment of £35,500 from the GLA accounts of Boris Johnson to this judge in 2008, so a fairly long time ago, but that is something you have to disclose. If you're a judge and you've got a previously paying client in front of you who's provided you and your home and your family with a very significant amount of money, and on the other hand, you have somebody else who's never given you any money and you have no contact with, you've never met, there's been no relationship, that is something you have to say. And that's the argument I made in my complaint. Next up, it just started getting dark and uh, confusing and unhappy because there's this club. It's a private members club. It's a secretive um, social club, if you like, for men. Women aren't allowed to join. And it's packed full of judges. It's also packed full of politicians and journalists. And what I found out was that this judge who killed our case has been a member longer than I've been alive. And uh, Boris Johnson's father has been a member for the last eight or nine years. And Boris Johnson's colleagues and key political allies who have also, I allege, lied to the public about the very same thing that our case is interested in, they are also a part of this same club. So what you've got is judges who are meant to be balanced and impartial are spending their social working hours in a club surrounded by people who have done the same thing that this man has been accused of doing in this criminal prosecution case. If he were to rule against Johnson, in this case, it would be high profile as hell. It'd be absolutely everywhere. And the next time he walks into that club, he's going to have to face up to not just random people who aren't connected to the case, but the accused's father, key political allies, professional allies who've done the same thing. So potentially he's helping to criminalize activities that people in his own club have also carried out. And the idea that that would have absolutely no conscious or subconscious influence on him whatsoever is total rubbish. So what's next? What's next is, the lesson I've learned is two things. First of all, the courts in London, the judges are too intertwined with the political establishment. They're too influenced by the powers that be to fairly consider a criminal prosecution case against the Prime Minister. It's just too much for them. They can't handle it. It's um, 
subconscious and conscious bias all over the place doesn't work so first thing is i'm going to scotland and i'm going to try to prosecute boris johnson again through the scottish court system because their judges their judiciary are not just geographically separate they're also culturally very distant as well because of the tensions between the two countries mm -hmm. The second is mount a communications campaign. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the biggest issues, issues with my case is that Boris Johnson is a communications expert. He has great communications out. teams uh -huh. who, um, the moment we won in the initial stage, we got hammered. We got attacked every single angle. The Daily Mail, the Express, the Telegraph, the Spectator, everyone was just going for us saying how awful we were. And that had a huge impact. We did not have a communication strategy in place. My reputation online now is pretty patchy <laughs> because I didn't prepare. I didn't have the money or the knowledge required to be prepared for that attack. What were some of the most ridiculous claims <laughs> that came against you? Yeah, I think this is why they're here, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the Daily Mail had a headline which said something along, along the lines of um, Marcus Ball spends fifty thousand pounds of crowdfunders' money on cupcakes and self-defense lessons, which is uh, just. Obviously, absolute like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a mistake I made. I was naive, right? What I did was I knew I was prosecuting someone for lying about money. So I could never be seen to be lying about money. So I posted a financial spending report of everything I've ever spent money on up to that date in detail with my arguments for and against whether or not they were good decisions. So I included bad things I did, mistakes I'd made as well as good things because the whole value of the case and the company is honesty and transparency even if you do something wrong you still tell everyone and your personal integrity right yeah that's 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 how i i like to see it myself mm -hmm. um <laughs> however what i also did uh, by accident was i gave tabloid journalists who don't really care about reporting what's really going on fantastic opportunities to just knife me a bit in the dark so I, I reported that I spent, uh, I think it was about 200 and something pounds on cupcakes, which I sent to legal teams to thank them for doing pro bono work for me, which is a very cost effective way of saying thank you, you're valued. Case in point. And I also took, yeah, and I also took up self-defense lessons because um, it's good exercise, it's good for your mental health and physical fitness, but also I was concerned because people like Gina Miller, who were doing other cases against the powers that be, were being threatened with being raped to death and murdered. And... Uh, one man actually went to prison because he offered a £5,000 reward on the internet to have her run over. <laughs> so I was just thinking, Oof. what I'm doing is a hell of a lot more aggressive than what she was doing. Mm. So it's going to make people unhappy. So it would be smart if I felt a bit more confident and able to defend myself. Sure. That somehow turned into £50,000 on cupcakes and self-defense lessons. Of course you had your backers, but what else enabled you to maintain that motivation and see the bigger picture i'm driven by the idea that um when i'm on my deathbed <laughs> i want to be able to look back at my life and think i did something which actually changed the world and made a difference and added value to society and, and solved the problem like you which i think you probably have the same view right mm -hmm. you want to do something massive yeah and you want to save the world from environmental change which is actually bigger than what i'm doing so you totally understand it um save your complex we love that <laughs> <laughs> um I want to focus on solving a big problem for society because mm. that's going to make me feel like I'm worth something. I feel and, meaningful. And do you feel that acting in the face of extreme adversity, if anything, fueled that determination? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would quite like it if we just won first time and everything went swimmingly. That would yeah. be much better. Yeah. 
Uh, it's not that I but just... Do you feel like this opens up an even bigger conversation about how institutionalized this corruption is? I think that lying in power is everywhere. It happens in courts. It happens with judges. It happens with politicians. It happens with the police. It happens with the press. It's a massive, massive problem. It just does huge damage. I've just seen it everywhere. How do you then need to respond in your strategy and your approach? And is it about redeeming certain values that perhaps we've plastered over in our society? Maybe. Um, I would first of all say that his job is much easier than mine. Lying is incredibly effective. It's so quick. You can deploy one straight away. You can just make it up and use it and repeat it a few times. In order to prove that someone's lied, it can take months. I mean, look at me. I've been doing this for three and a half years, and it's basically just one lie that I'm focused on. It's so difficult to prove that someone's lied and hold them to account. It's just exhausting. No one else is going to do this. <laughs> you need politicians who are f scared of lying to us. You need aggression. You need to outpower them. You need to have more power on your side than they have on theirs. And so what's the role of campaigning, rallying support, communicating this in a really compelling way if you feel that most people have kind of reached a point where they're just apathetic or, or don't care. I had a very interesting conversation with a communications guy yesterday. And one thing we've been struggling with for years is people think that our prosecution case is an attempt to stop Brexit happening. Mm. It is legally impossible for our case to stop Brexit happening because it's just a criminal case against one person. That's it. It's not a, a judicial review of a government decision. So it can't legally stop Brexit happening. So he said to me that uh, a useful phrase that we could use to quickly help people understand is um, we could say after Brexit, and that's it, after Brexit. Mm. We need to make it clear to people that our case is about changing our country, not changing Brexit. So mm. after Brexit happens, we need to be able to live in a country where we can trust each other and trust politicians again. So the solution to that is to make it illegal for politicians to lie to us after brexit and i found that to be really effective and short and simple yeah regardless though they're still going to come after me about cupcakes <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's also reflective of you know the most recent election results as well mm. and it was the simplicity of the tory messaging get brexit done yeah and the confusion within the labor party of I, their stance i i don't know much about political parties and campaigning and stuff like that i actually I didn't vote the last three times I could. You didn't vote? No. Ooh, interesting. I'm accused in court of being a politically motivated, vexatious prosecutor over and over again. So my solution to that was to just completely disconnect from politics and just stop caring about actually voting and that kind of thing. I'm not a member of any political party. I'm not um, a friend of a political party. I'm just my own person and my interest is in the conduct of politicians it's not in politics itself and that's something i'm trying to get across all the time interesting that you are trying to change the establishment without directly engaging in its fundamental democratic process why should i vote for anybody when they have no legal reason to tell me the truth about why i should vote for them that's how i feel as me personally i think that everybody else should vote if they want to and they should engage but for me, voting democracy, the whole idea is just so poisonous and bullshitty that I don't want to engage with it. This, this is my way of engaging with it, mm. me doing my job. And I feel that contributes a lot more than a single vote would anyway. So I think it's clear I care. <laughs> um, 
It's funny, people get annoyed with me for not voting. (laughs) Uh, But I think I'm not going to start. An idea that I'm fascinated by and something that I find super inspiring is when people assume responsibility, and it's something that you touched on earlier, Mm. is saying, it's not necessarily my job to do this thing, but I believe in it and I'm going to do it anyway. And I think what keeps a lot of us from stepping up and taking action in a meaningful way is that we project responsibility onto institutions and systems of power, oftentimes in a nature that creates a relationship um, of dependency between individual and institution. Right. Because it allows us to disengage from the process. And so I find it incredibly inspiring when people step up in the way that you did and said, well, this is not okay, And I'm not willing to sit idly by and watch this happen in my lifetime. And so I'm curious to hear because you're not a lawyer. You didn't have a background in politics. What was it about your life up until that point that served you to take this kind of radical leap? And what have you learned throughout that process? Several things. First of all, I've been running my own companies for six years before I did this. I've been self-employed, self-directed, have my own ideas. I act based upon what I believe is right. If you work in a big corporation, there is a risk that you become institutionalized. You start being dependent upon what your manager thinks is right. And there's a part, I have this belief that a part of your brain stops functioning because what you're actually going to do with your life is not determined by your thought process. It's determined by people above you. And if for five, 10 years you work for a corporation, you're not going to be using that part of your brain, which says, what are you doing next? You're going to be listening and doing what you're told. And that breeds people who are obedient. And in my view, don't really think about holding powerful people to account anyway. I don't think I could fulfill my own personal ambitions if I'm working for someone else. I just, I want to do what I believe in. And if you have a boss who's telling you, go and do that instead, it just doesn't work for me. Um, in terms of skills as in practical skills that have helped me with this, uh, I'm a communicator. I speak in public a lot. I have to be able to articulate a solution to quite a complex problem. And the re the, the reason I, I feel like I'm capable of doing that is because during those six years, because I don't come from a wealthy background, I had to pitch and explain and argue for every resource I was ever given. I had to persuade my university to give me my first bit of funding. I had to persuade my first client to give me my first contract. I had to persuade everyone around me to work with me, despite the fact that I wasn't rich, I wasn't powerful, I, have, I didn't have any official title or anything. So I had to articulate everything and persuade people. And that um, was an excellent education uh, in public speaking and communicating. So that's a practical skill, which has been really helpful. Um, It's actually an advantage, I think, coming from not having much. Um, You know, I'm white and I'm British and I'm a guy, so I'm not complaining. I'm just saying (laughs) resource wise, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, there's an advantage in that because you have to learn how to get it. Uh, leadership. So part of this work is leading lawyers, it's um, recruiting lawyers, it's leading the backers. I spent a long time trying to change the way universities teach their students. That was what I did for those six years. That was a higher education reform work that I did. That involved a lot of um, leadership of university students when I was one and also when I worked with them after university. So leadership and communication are probably the two biggest skills. And just the habit that I'm sure you're in um, as a self-employed, self-directed person is whenever you come across a problem, you have to work out the solution to it. So interesting what you're saying about this theme of self-determination and self-efficacy. And 
uh, so fascinating what you were saying about people in the corporate world and this kind of like dissonance that is created because that has been my exact experience I working bet, with yeah. corporates. And you'll speak to a group of executives uh, and on a topical level, they completely get the problems. They understand the context of climate change in their personal lives. They're saying, yeah, I'm doing the recycling. I've stopped flying. I've gone vegetarian. I'm persuading all of my friends. And I show up to work every day at a company that is ruining ecosystems around the world and is fundamentally broken and exploiting people. People, and that's mm. how it creates value, right? But it's very hard to reconnect and almost like recalibrate because you're so used to plastering of your feelings and you're so used to being directed yep. from external forces rather than being highly in tune with that kind of internal compass, Completely. moral compass, and also the courage to be able to step out and say, okay, well, taking this radical action or at least trying to create change within my organization might mean that I leave, that I get pushed out, and that's absolutely fine because I will find a way no matter what i yeah i totally agree i i knew you'd understand that <laughs> <laughs> i don't need to explain that to you <laughs> yeah so sitting where you are today right here right here right here right now looking back to day one when you marcus j bull decided that i want to prosecute Mm. Boris Johnson. Well, to be fair, at the beginning, mm -hmm. I was looking at both sides and multiple different people, but I get sure. your point, yeah. Well, you decided that you wanted to have a role in impacting the way that democracy operates in this country. Yeah. Sitting where you are today, what would you say to yourself on day one? The one thing would be, don't be so hard on yourself. It doesn't matter how well you perform and how right you are. There are so many lying bullshitty awful people in positions of power in society it doesn't matter how great you are they will still manage to find a way to fuck up your work so don't panic don't hate yourself when you fail and that would make myself feel better but i wouldn't tell it to me because it would also that 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 feeling of fear of failure and desperation to achieve has been what's driving me for three and a half years and for the last, actually this year, the last month, I've been really relaxed and being quite nice to myself. <laughs> I'm quite happy. I'm less productive. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a certain kind of naive optimism with which you entered into this. The world needs that, though. The world needs that yeah. naive optimism. So yeah. how will you maintain your willingness to fail going forward and how do you begin to relinquish attachment to expectation and kind of take that approach of well you know every day we may build and at the end everything that we've created may be destroyed but we should build anyway yeah um some people have this fear that if they try and do something and they mess it up and they fail that it would be awful you should always try and do things which are important, even if it's possible you fail, because that's the only way anything ever gets done ever. So, yeah, I believe in that. How do I how do I maintain my enthusiasm and my drive for this work when I I know it's possible I'll fail? Um, it's just more important than me. And this is something you said the other day, which I really liked, which I totally agree with. And I kind of first learned um, when I was about twenty uh, was. When you stop focusing on how you feel and your identity and yourself when you're doing work, and instead you become totally obsessed with the problem and trying to solve the problem and understand the problem, and you become an 
a servant, if you like, to the problem, to solving the problem, your confidence skyrockets because you stop caring about people thinking, oh, who's this guy? You know, what does it, it seems like? absurd in it, that context. Yeah, it does. Why should you care? It's, why should you be worried about yourself? The, the work is so important, solving the problem, saving the environment from destruction. What could be more important than that? That's the single most important thing on the planet. Mm. If, we don't, if you don't do what you're doing, if we don't have people like you, the planet won't exist. And every other problem becomes irrelevant. And I think we have to experience so. loss to be able to realize that mandate and that mission yeah we do that's the thing for me as well yeah even in the context of politics i feel that it's something that i had the privilege privilege of not engaging with for a lot of my life because i didn't need to mm. because i come from a place of privilege right because i've been in a bubble where Actually, from a socioeconomic perspective, the decisions that politicians make are not going to directly impact or impede my life tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for a long time, I was able to skirt on the edges. And then with relationships and with stories and of hearing the harrowing lived experience of other individuals for which that is not the case, you realize in yourself that there is a responsibility. Yeah. To act and to act in the service of others. Yes. And in fact, yeah. if you have been the beneficiary of that privilege, it is your fundamental responsibility. You cannot afford to not act. I agree. Totally. And with loss, I feel because of my lived experience, you know, growing up in tropical North Queensland in a living room without walls where every day we would, you know, lift cushions on the couch and find baby pythons curled up sleeping peacefully and that green tree terrifying. frogs in the toilet <laughs> bowl and cuddly koalas. Um, experiencing that and having that serve as the fabric of my reality and then watching documentaries when I was 11 about gross exploitation of the animal world, watching films like An Inconvenient Truth, hearing from Al Gore just what was at stake if we chose apathy over agency I was so filled with despair and heartbreak and loss that there was no other option than to step up I think you probably have a much stronger um, empathy gene than most people most people don't have the ability to envision and picture and feel that much and understand what it means and understand the responsibility they have to solve a problem like that so I think it's also an age thing I feel that we are much more compassionate in a palpable way when we're younger. And being the age that I was, having the context of what we were losing, there was this sort of moral absolutism that came into play, which I also experienced working with lots of young climate strikers, is that they have been they have not been around long enough to become jaded by institution or to have benefited from the very systems that climate change tells us mm. are fundamentally broken and so there is this kind of overwhelming Purity. feeling of like do or die yeah. you know and there's less of that nuance and messy in between and i think if anything that's something that we need to kind of rekindle within 
us all because it is all there. And yet we learn through priming, through our education to plaster over those feelings and to not sit with them. And that's why I choose to work with young people is because it's a lot more um, freeing and a lot more grounding than working with, you know, chief executives with whom you have to try and do so much unlearning and like so much peeling back of the layers and so much reconnection with that kind of moral compass. That makes sense. I like I like what you said about loss, especially. I mm. think that's really relevant. I think if you've lost something and you've had a, a huge emotional impact on your life it kind of gives you a, a value um perspective and it helps you to understand why it's so important to make the most of your life mm. so something which i always credit as being something which has uh, motivated me was um when i was 12 i had a sister and she was 17 and she sadly passed away because she had a, a genetic illness and um i think for me just rationally speaking having lost someone I cared about so much, it kind of made a hole in, in who I am. And I have this, uh, this, this feeling that perhaps because it happened at about 12 and because I started to become really ambitious at about the same time, I was thinking that perhaps I'm trying to fill up that hole with a sense of achievement. So I think, um, yeah, I would totally agree with your argument on loss because once you've lost something that hugely important to you, you have to fill it with something and you have to have a, a better perspective of, of uh of solving problems i think because it, it makes you realize first of all it makes you realize that you can die <laughs> it's like it's like what you were saying earlier in the world is spinning around everyone's dying everything, everything's crazy <laughs> like just do something <laughs> um, but actually seeing someone you care about having passed away like dead in front of you it's just such a shock it's just such a fucking wake up you are alive once do something meaningful with your fucking life mm. <laughs> otherwise it's pointless um that's the thing i took away from that and also i think it gives you more emotional range i was explaining this to someone last night if you've experienced that much pain when you're that young and it's just that horrible you have the ability you know that let's say this is your happy place and this is your sad place mm. and i think that if you don't experience great uh, grief and loss at an early age you're probably in this kind of range mm. unless something happens to you but if you know um that something bad has happened to you you can be this depressed and unhappy you have that range the rest of your life i think um and i think that that's a greater range of comfort you know that even if you fail in your work you're never going to feel as bad as you felt when that happened so you know you're going to be able to be able to cope with it so i think that death and grief can actually give and loss can give you um a wider operating capacity emotionally speaking does that make sense mm, it makes a lot of sense cool and how would you suggest we mobilize more people to come to terms with loss because loss and death is all around us and ever more so in the context of oh. a changing climate. We're getting philosophical. <laughs> okay, hang on. all right. Um, so are we talking about grief and death? Are we talking about the climate <laughs> or are we talking about like... I think part of our problem is that we're not fully willing to look in the face of what has already been lost by way of species okay, habitat sorry, yeah, yeah. human life relationships culture indigenous culture we have not fully looked in the face of it because it is so painful and mm. 
enshrined in that pain is the realization that we are all complicit in the problems and by the very nature of how we live every day, continue to contribute to these problems. What is your suggestion, Marcus? <laughs> for I have the answer. It's in my, it's in my pocket, actually. Um, Fanny should ask. That's quite a big one. Uh, the first thing I thought of when you said that was, I remember when I was a kid growing up, when I lived in the countryside, there were insects everywhere. There were bees, there were wasps, there were flies coming at your face, and I was terrified of wasps and bees when I was a kid. And they were bloody everywhere. The air was just thick with them. And I swear that as I've gotten older and I've gone back and forth between the city and the countryside, there were just less of them. And I thought, am I, you know, am I subconsciously being influenced by all, all these articles saying there are less and less insects? But it just feels like there is less. I feel the same. Even yeah. like driving around in a car and like the bug splatter. On the window. Is less, yeah. Although, yeah, the, the going stat is that in the past 27 years, we've lost 75% of insect biomass. Fucking hell. Is that really? If not more. I think uh, my answer to this is uh, the human brain is is immensely creative and has a huge ability to create complexity, which is brilliant, and we need complexity. But I don't think it's powerful enough to comprehend all of the different complexities it's made. I don't think the human brain is powerful enough to understand the world we live in. We're not clever enough yet. I think we need to upgrade our brains. I just, I mean, look at this device in front of my face. This is this is amazing. It's magic. I have no idea how it works. <laughs> um, well, I, think, <laughs> I think that's a very important um, analogy and connection to the natural world because if we are not intimately acquainted with how it works and the value that it brings, not in the table for the trees, but in ecological services, in terms of mental health, in terms of being able to being able to live and breathe on a very base kind of level. If we are not acquainted well enough, we are not aware of what we are losing. And as you said, even growing up, you were hyper aware of, you know, the insects in your life, right? Mm. But, you know, perhaps you weren't familiar with the role of bees in pollinating. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand how important they were. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just such a massive question. Is how do you how the question is I guess how do you get the human race to face up to what it's losing mm. and change its behaviour? I mean, isn't that your job actually? <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't you be answering that question? My job is asking the experts <laughs> and then pretending that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I was just saying that one of the beliefs I have is that all the problems around us are completely our fault. All of us individually, the climate change is my fault. The fact that I eat meat, which is destroying the planet in huge amounts. I, I eat a lot of meat. It's my fault. I'm bad. I'm not a good human being. All of it is our responsibility. It's our fault. And taking responsibility for solving one problem, I think, is your way of cleansing yourself of that. So you can stop panicking and stop hating yourself if you're not... Uh, you can stop hating yourself for being responsible for all these problems as long as you take responsibility for one and you try and do something about it. Because if, if, if a million of us, if, if a million young people try and take responsibility for each of these problems, the world is going to be so much better in 100 years. It's going to be fantastic. Welcome to Force of Nature's mission. Yes, I've been reading your <laughs> website, yeah. So 
this is a lot of the work that we do with young people is like rather than spread yourself in across lots don't laugh at me, lots of different <laughs> problems and causes how do you focus in on that one problem that you want to see solved because this is what and i i mean you might want to get like conspiratorial about it but the way in which we communicate climate change and environmental challenges is so problematic because we continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. We tell people to buy their reusable coffee cups, to turn off the lights when they leave a room, to ultimately sway themselves in the sweet assurance that they've done their bit while virtue signaling all the way on social media, right? And we say, that's enough, you know? And that's that has been day one since climate change first came into public awareness decades ago, was, oh, if only you change your light bulbs. All of the powers, all of the powerful people knew that that was fundamentally not enough. So our idea of individual activism and agency needs to shift away from tokenism to individual initiative. And individual initiative, I believe, and I think so do you, starts with identifying that one problem that you want to see solved in the world and then going very deep with it and showing up according to your unique skills and passions and whatnot and a lot of humility. Be willing to ask a lot of questions and pull in help along the way from people who know better than you do. Right. But it, it is ultimately about that focus, you know, and I think any change maker in history would say exactly that impact deep, comes from focus, deep focus, fo- obsession, obsession. People shouldn't be feel comfortable, but un- uncomfortable about the word obsession. Mm. People think it's an unhealthy thing. Oh, you shouldn't be obsessed about it. Like, calm down, go and watch TV, go for a walk with the dog. No, I want to be obsessed. Being obsessed is the most purely human thing you can be. Being obsessed about a problem and solving it, which if you solve, it will make the world a better place. That's beautiful. That obsession is just, it's fantastic. That's just peak humanity. You know, animals survive. They live, they reproduce, they sleep. Fuck off. Like, <laughs> only a human being is, in our, in our planet, clever enough to have an obsession to solve a problem, to create something great or destroy a problem. Or That's being a human being, I think. You need to be able to go into like the depths of despair. You need to, like Jungian psychologists talk about, like swimming through the lakes of your unconscious, down, 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 right into the mud and putting your hands in the mud and kind of like playing there like a sand pit and uncovering things about yourself that you otherwise want to kind of paper over. And I think it's something that we also have to reconcile working in the kind of like quote unquote change maker space is that sure you need to show up and you need to feel a real responsibility and you need to be uncompromising and you have to pursue that problem like hell but you can't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders because I've seen in friends and I've seen it in myself the impact that that has and how it can actually make you really ineffective Mm. because you are being driven by fear rather than being driven by what is possible. If you focus on the problem and focus on solving a problem and contributing to the world in some way, which is going to matter, you will start to value yourself more because you're invested in solving that problem. It's this whole idea of, um, this is going to sound really douchebaggy, but I don't care. I believe in it. Uh, (laughs) You know the word samurai? It means to serve, right? So Japanese feudal culture, the whole hierarchical system was based upon armed soldier type people who had land and rice allocated to them in exchange for service to a lord a daimyo um similar to uk uh, english it wouldn't be the uk then but old english medieval structures the idea is, is that you serve someone or something you don't serve yourself 
And I, I love that. I believe in that. I think that's fantastic. I, I think religion is based upon that idea. You don't serve yourself. You serve God mm. or some deity of some kind. I think it's a human need to serve something, to believe in something, to solve a problem, to be obsessed with something. I think that's 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 peak humanity, as I said before. And that's why I love meeting people like you, because I feel that you're doing that too. You're not serving just yourself and what you need in life. You're serving something you believe in. Mm. And that's just... And the points at which I've yeah. been least happy in my life is when I've strayed away from that. I think oftentimes, like, the most effective thing that you can just do is, like, tune into your gut and, like, listen to your gut when it tells you that this is wrong and this is right. And it's part of what we were talking about in, like, the corporate culture, which is so dangerous, is that you then subscribe to a new set of norms and a new set of expectations. Mm. And suddenly who you're willing to be without the mask when you're not at your nine to five, you're no longer willing to show up according to those same values in your workplace. You stop integrating mm. and it makes you feel like you're out of place and disjointed and out of step with yourself and it's yeah. horrible. I love this idea though of obsession. And so where do you feel like your obsession is carrying you next, Marcus? My obsession is get the case back into court. Number one. Number two, run a communications campaign just before that to make sure everybody understands why and what's happening so they actually understand the case and what we're re really trying to achieve. We're not trying to stop Brexit. We don't hate Boris Johnson. We're not trying to attack the Conservative Party. We are simply trying to prove that legally a politician cannot lie to us about our money. They also can't lie to us about the reasons for going to war or the reasons to vote for them, all that kind of thing. Um, I think that would be a massive achievement and I'm obsessed with the idea that I could just relax and go on holiday for a few months after that. Just thinking to myself, I just did something that really matters and I made a contribution and I can just stop feeling that I'm not enough. Do you not feel like myself. you've done that already? I've made a contribution and I feel proud of what I've done and I don't regret it at all. But I have not reached the conclusion that I need to reach. People keep telling me um, in emails every day, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I'm going to keep going. We need to keep going. Would you, st would you stop now? Never. No, there you go. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I do think a holiday would be healthy, though. This year, I am <laughs> going to go on a selfish holiday, not a working holiday, a selfish holiday. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh, wow. Well, after I'm dead. Yeah. What do you want Marcus to be remembered for? Um, for? Three things. I'm going to do three things in my life. That's what I want to do. The first thing will be to set a legal precedent in English common law, which influences Australian law and other countries, saying elected representatives cannot repeatedly, knowingly lie to the public. If they do, there are criminal sanctions. That's great. That just sends, that sends a, a values message to the whole planet. Fake news, lying in politics, stop doing it. It's, it's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to make a big impact. That's my first thing. My second thing is I would like to return to my passion from before this, which was higher education reform. I finished six years of higher education reform, and uh, I, I was interested in the green school, actually. I really? wanted to know about that because learning can, by doing is a whole big thing. You can and interrogate me about that after. Sounds good. Um, I would like to create a new university after this case is done and this work is done eventually. I... It's a huge project. It'd be way bigger than this. I'd need a hell of a lot more money. Um, but that's something I'd love to do. And the third thing would be... I think be... you just found your partner in crime. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you'd be on this one. The third thing is an environmental thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. So lying in politics, higher education reform, and the environment. Mm. Three big pieces of work, three big achievements. That would be... I, 
I'd be really happy with that as a legacy. It's good that you're uh, setting your aims quite modestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, <laughs> I want to have a nice life, so a nice easy life. But it's, it's just big. It's ambition just drives me. It makes me feel alive. Yeah. What's your legacy? When, you, when you're dead. Love it when you're uh, are you, the table. Are you going to have, you know, volcanoes going off around you as the world disintegrates? <laughs> <laughs> or are you going to die in a world which is healing and full of green life and there are 75 percent insects back again i realize that my ability to show up and do what i do every day is dependent on my ability to relinquish expectation and to not embody failure in the same way (laughs) that you've talked about about yourself you're in the entirety of your self-worth being based on on an outcome that has to be out of your control. That's the thing, right? Yeah. Like, well put, articulately put. Yeah. Climate change. <laughs> Makes me sound mad, <laughs> I want to change my answer now. You destroyed Sorry. my argument. <laughs> Climate change is so enormous, and whenever I think about how enormous it is, the perfectly normal human response is to feel overwhelmed and powerless, and feel like it's too big to take on and I realize that my power is in focus Mm. and in line with this idea around identifying the problem that you want to see solved in the world I believe that the greatest threat we face is not climate change or ecological collapse I believe that is our it is our feeling of powerlessness in the face of these challenges it is our feeling of overwhelm this is what I wrote my thesis on when I was 16 (laughs) is the idea of ecotone I was working (laughs) when I was 16 (laughs) Um, I always wanted to go into hospitality. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote my thesis on this idea of ecophobia, which is specifically the feeling of powerlessness in the face of environmental catastrophe. Because it's so huge. Because it's so fucking massive, right? And you can't process it. And so my obsession is the psychology of agency. So why we do or don't take action on the issues that we care about and understanding what it is by way of self-limiting beliefs, specifically core destructive beliefs that keep us from fulfilling that change-making potential. And I've realized that obviously one of my core negative beliefs is that I am not enough and that I'm never doing enough. Ultimately, that perpetuates a cycle of um, self-hatred and it is not constructive at the end of the day. And so I feel like the problem is big enough to keep me in check Mm. and to continually contextualize why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I have to be okay with throwing everything that I can at this and still failing, failing in the context of us not solving climate change, failing in the context of us losing the Amazon and losing Borneo and losing Australia. I have to reconcile that outcome or else I'm going to be too attached to my fear of failure to be able to show up in the way that I need to and to be able to speak to the opportunity of what is possible to young people in a way that instills hope over despair. No, I think that that's, that's an incredibly healthy and well-explained approach to your work. I think that's great. Mm. Maybe I should adapt to that. I don't know. Even the fact that you're making me consider it is a testament to how persuasive it was. Um, Love that. I, I'm much happier this year. Last year I was a mess. I was so unhappy. I was just miserable and unhealthy. I was really productive, but it's not sustainable. I can't do that every year. Mm. So maybe let's have another conversation in a year. <laughs> what gives you hope? Um, I actually think um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of 
Peter Diamandis. Find something you die for and live for it. It's one of his quotes. That sounds good too. Yeah. He's a clever man. I haven't heard he of that is, one, but he's clever. clever one. The pragmatic op- optimist. Have you heard mm. about him? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he he makes the point. So does Diamandis in one of his talks. He says because the news media knows that our brains are switched on to negative information they constantly show us negative information because that was what makes us buy newspapers etc so that's how their business models run the side effect of this is that we seem to think that we actually live in a really negative terrible world because that's all the information we ever see is bad news bad news bad news he makes the um, the argument though that if you look at it from a timeline perspective child mortality rates have massively improved literacy rates have massively improved access to clean water has massively improved in terms of um lives lost in combat this is the single most peaceful time period in the history of humanity we have actually got the ability over time to identify and solve problems in huge ways and as a species we're actually kicking ass in many ways we're actually really quite amazing in terms of how much we're advancing and improving. And I think that gives me massive hope. I think we will eventually solve the problem and I will think we will eventually solve lying in politics. And I have this belief that eventually we will, as a species, leave planet Earth and uh, explore the cosmos and just be a, a star-faring, exploring species. I just think that's the, the destiny of the species and we just have to go in that direction and I think we should solve as many problems as we can before we get to that point so that the ex- the export version of humanity is a high quality product. It's not a messed up product, if that makes sense. So when humans leave planet Earth to explore the galaxy, we're pretty clever. We know what we're doing and we're <laughs> pretty sensible and we're not scumbags. Earlier you said that you feel like humans need to go through an upgrade. Hmm. Yeah. Are you speaking to elevating in consciousness, not leaving our empathy at the door, or are you coming at this from more of a techno-utopian Elon Musk implanting his chips in our brains perspective? Um, probably more like the latter. I think we need to have a better grasp, um, a better memory of factual information. We have emotional memories, we have flawed memories, we don't remember vast amounts of data and we can't access that data at all times, so referring to this device in front of me again, I don't know how it works. I should be able to access in my brain all the information I need to understand how that device works at all times. But don't you feel like we're in this mess because we have been overly ruled by a kind of mechanistic view of the world that reduces us down to kind of cogs and, in fact, we need to rekindle our humanity and our radical humanism actually i would argue the opposite i'd argue that it's our humanity which is not strong enough we it's the, our humanity is uh is part of the problem we need to stop being just humans we need to be an advanced version of ourselves we need greater memory we need greater knowledge greater rationality we need to make decisions based upon factual information instead of ridiculous arguments here's, here's a way of um expressing and demonstrating this it is bizarre it is totally ridiculous that vote leave managed to hit us with about a billion facebook ads a great deal of many were totally false misleading crap information and our brains didn't have the ability to understand that it was false misleading information. but that speaks to broken systems as opposed to broken individuals we wouldn't have to rely and here's here's the thing about your point about institutions and individuals feeling that it's the institution's responsibility. 
if the human brain was so advanced that it could immediately identify false information and immediately understand problems around it, we wouldn't have so much of a need to have institutions in the same way because we'd individually be far more capable. I think the more capable human beings are, the better our lives will be, the better the, we'll treat the planet. I just think this is, this is we're in an early stage of humanity. If we turn know? ourselves into machines, it may there be organic. is a risk. It may be organic, who knows? There is a risk of losing the very things that we are trying to protect. And I think part of our problem with how we've treated ecosystems, how we've treated one another, is the fact that we've, we're very reductionist in our nature and we try to understand complexity, even if complexity is not something that we should try to understand. And if you begin to go too down the line of, too far down the line of machines, and turning our brains into machines and becoming more rational, rationally minded creatures. I think you also tip into the world of nihilism. And in fact, it could be very easy to look at everything that we're doing and say, well, actually, the earth's going to be blown to smithereens in six billion years. So you might as well just let the nature of reality take its course. And you might as well let people at the top vie for power and do what they will. But there is something inside of us that is fundamentally not a machine, that is something within our unconscious, which is something within mm, okay, consciousness sorry. that we cannot yeah. understand. I'm that- going to, I, I, see, I see where you're getting, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, when I say change the way humans are, I don't mean turn into a cyborg with no hopes and dreams and aspirations and belief and culture. I'm just saying basic stuff that I can't fully articulate and comprehend yet because it's way in the future and it hasn't happened. But this machine you have in front of you is your laptop. You, I, I saw it um, earlier on. We stopped walking in the cafe for a second and you checked it. You opened it up for some reason. The, the data, the information in there, as with my own laptop, I'm dependent upon it. I, I want to read it. I want to have engagement with it all the time. The only thing I'm really suggesting is that the laptop is in your head and it's you can access it much faster and you can remember everything in it. It's just a seamless way of integrating with the information in your computer in a far faster, more efficient way. That's what I think we should have. Why do we need to embody those machines though? If there's a disaster, if let's say there's a scenario, a school has a gas leak, there's an explosion and all the kids are injured. Someone who's present, who walks along the road and uh, finds this, should be able to understand how to do the very best they can to save all those children and preserve their life and help them, even if they're not a doctor. I think that everybody should have the ability to solve problems they immediately find themselves in. What would you say to a young, ambitious, bright person who wants to take on a problem in the world but feels mm. overwhelmed and has no idea where to start um i would say imagine you have no limitations whatsoever and you could achieve it automatically what would you specifically want to achieve and then i'd say okay the limitations are back try and do that <laughs> <laughs> i love that that's way more succinct than i've ever put it <laughs> <laughs> You should strive for the ideal of what you want to achieve and just jump over all the hurdles and everything as you go. Beautiful. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you very much. I enjoyed myself. <laughs> I'm going to eat this. Yes, do it. Okay. You haven't eaten I'm, any I'm of it. I'm going to do it off camera though. So <laughs> I feel a bit embarrassed eating it. 
Thanks for listening to this Force of Nature podcast with Marcus J. Ball. You can learn more about Marcus and his campaign to stop lying in politics in the show notes. We want to hear your questions, aha moments, musings, and of course, we want to know how you plan to claim your power ahead of next week's episode, when you'll be hearing from Fahana Yaman on how to unleash your inner rebel. Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Feruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.